Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. And uh, if you were here last week, you know, but if you weren't here last week, you may not know that we started uh, a study through the book of 1 Peter last week. Uh, looking at the first two verses last week, we'll look at this first larger chunk together this morning. So uh, before we read that together, would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that we can sing that our only foundation is Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you that we can celebrate him and his work for us in the cross and in the resurrection. His work even now as he sits at your right hand, Father, interceding on our behalf. We just pray, Father, that you would give us a clearer sight of Jesus this morning as we look at 1 Peter. We pray that you would uh, help us to understand all that you have for your children. Help us to delight in that and rejoice in that in a way that brings glory and honor to you. Father, fill us with your spirit to those ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I lack hope. A lot. Uh, Often I get discouraged. Uh, Sometimes I get depressed. Sometimes I despair of certain things ever changing. I want that to sink in because I'm going to talk this morning about hope. And I don't want you to think that I talk about hope from the perspective of one who has it easy. I have to fight for hope every day. Now, there there are certain cheery, optimistic people who I wouldn't want talking to me about hope. It seems to come easy for them. 
So this morning you get by God's providence someone who by nature is really a pessimistic cynic at heart proclaiming the hope of the gospel. Now I'm not sure whether that makes it more or less believable, uh, but that's what you get. So we're going to talk about hope this morning. Uh, Real hope for real people, and by that I mean people like you and me, uh, whose lives are not always easy, who struggle, who suffer, who face trials, who have enemies. And we're going to look at hope in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, under four questions. Those four questions can be found on the back of your bulletin. First question, where does, hope, where does real hope come from? Where does, what does real hope look like? What does real hope bring? And how incredible is this hope? So first, where does real hope come from? We look for hope in any number of places uh, in life. Things go bad. We look to other people to save us. We look to good old-fashioned elbow grease and hard work. Uh, We look to medicine, prescribed or otherwise. We look to humor, beauty, strength, anything we can use to try to gain control to give us some hope, hope that we can get out of this mess. And complete this sentence. Things will get better. If only I could, there is the source of your hope. Peter's going to proclaim for us a different kind of hope this morning. But he begins with praise. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter praises God. Uh, But not a generic praise. He he doesn't leave God in the abstract. This is not the God of Hallmark movies or civil religion. Peter praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the, the God who gave his only Son for our sin. This is the God who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. Why does Peter praise this God? Because, he says, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we're going to talk about this living hope in just a minute, but our question now is, where does this hope come from? And Peter gives two answers. Our being born again and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How is it that we come to this place where we have hope? Peter says God gives us new life. Peter means that God has made us spiritually alive. He's not talking about physical birth there, but spiritual. God has brought us into a new life. And he says we are born again to a living hope, which means that that there's a trajectory to the new birth. There is a, a trajectory to the life that God has given us. It's a living hope. The new birth is going somewhere. Birth is never in and of itself an end in and of itself. Of course, the same is true with the new birth. And yet the point that I want us to realize now is where this new birth comes from. He has caused us to be born again. Now that phrase, he has caused us to be born again, in Greek is actually just two words. And one of those words is us. And of the other word, uh, one commentator, Paul Ochtemeyer, says the use of this rare word puts emphasis rather on 
re-begetting or begetting anew than on being born anew. Now, uh, we don't normally use the word beget, but uh, it means to, to procreate or to sire, which is another word we don't normally use. Uh, And so the emphasis here, though, is on God's activity. Hence the ESV. He has caused us to be born again. We don't cause our own birth. No child begets herself. So where does hope come from? Peter says, God causes us to be born again, to have new spiritual life unto a living hope. Hope comes from the activity of God. Peter goes on in verse 3, again, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says our new birth comes through the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what he means. We've been given new life only because we are united to Christ who received new life first. Paul says we uh, have been raised with Christ in Colossians 3.1, that, that even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2.5. God gives new life to us because he has first given new life to Christ, and we find new life in him. So the God who raised Jesus from the dead has united us to Jesus by faith, and in so doing, given us new life as well. And this new life, Peter says, is unto a living hope. And so, right away, we need to start thinking about in what is your hope? Do we hope in the things of the present? Do we hope or trust in the powers of this age, our knowledge, our strengths, our beauty, our academic learning, in our ability to manipulate and control our environment so that we can bring security or fulfillment or hope? Do we think, if only I do this, or if only I say that, then I can have hope that tomorrow will be better than today. But in its most simple terms, what Peter is saying is simply this. You can have hope not because you are at work, but because God is at work. God worked in Christ to raise him from the dead. God worked... In you, if you are a believer in Jesus, to bring you new life, bringing you to faith in Jesus by the power of his spirit. And so as with Abraham, then, our hope is not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So where does real hope come from? It comes from God, the God who raises the dead, the God who gives new life. What does it look like? What does real hope look like? Now, to answer that question, I actually have to back up a bit and answer a different question, which is, what do we mean by the word hope? We often get into trouble when we don't define our terms, and hope is actually a pretty slippery term, because hope can be used in a number of different ways. Uh, First, hope can be used to refer to a feeling, a longing, a wish, as in, I really hope I pass this test. And that longing may or may not be grounded in reality. Hope can also refer to the grounds for the feeling, the person or thing in which the expectations are centered. So, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Obi-Wan is the objective grounds for Princess Leia having a subjective hope. That's what she means. 
Finally, hope can refer to the something that is hoped for. As in, their hope was to make it through the storm alive. When Peter uses the word hope here, he's not talking about the subjective feeling, nor is he talking about the grounds for our hope, which we've just seen is God. By a living hope, he means the thing for which we hope. Our hope is the object of our expectation and our longing. Now, I'm probably going to move back and forth between the the uses of this word uh, without you or me even noticing, uh, because they really are so closely related. But I point this out now to be clear that when we ask this question, what does real hope look like, I'm actually asking a question about the object, the thing for which we hope. And Peter tells us three things about this hope. First, it is a living hope. There's a lot of wishful thinking uh, in the world. Some people are better at wishful thinking than others. Uh, There's a lot of, well, just tell yourself everything is going to turn out right, and it will, type of thinking. But here's the problem with all worldly hopes, all hopes for this life, all hope in the powers of this life, death brings an end to them all. All worldly hopes end in death. The things in which we hope pass away, the things for which we hope come to an end. And this is why Peter qualifies the Christian hope by calling it a living hope. It may seem morbid to say, but everything in this life is dying. And then there's Jesus. He came to face death. He faced death and died. But he died as the righteous one over whom death had no right or power. And so he rose, conquering death and receiving resurrection life as the reward for his obedience. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Whatever this hope is, unlike every other hope we know, it transcends death. And not just because we have some vague hope that people go to a better place when they die. That's actually not a living hope. No, Jesus didn't keep living in some vague spiritual way even though he died. Jesus rose from the dead. He came back to life. Our hope is not, though we die, we will keep living in some spiritual way, though that is true. Theologians call that the intermediate state. Intermediate because it's not the end. It's not ultimate. Our hope, our final hope, is that though we die, yet we will live that as Jesus rose, so we will rise on the last day. That is our living hope. So first, we have a living hope. Second, Peter describes this hope as our inheritance. An inheritance is something uh, passed on from your parents, right? Your birthright. Sometimes it consists of money or valuables or property. Sometimes all it takes is a single fire or a single flood or a single tornado, and in a moment, that inheritance is reduced to nothing. The context of Peter's use of this word is actually the Old Testament inheritance, the land of Israel. And uh, the, the land of Canaan was called Israel's inheritance, their lot, their portion. And Peter is saying, unlike the land of Canaan, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled, and unfading. The opposite, actually, of each of those negative words was used in the Old Testament to describe the land at some point. Isaiah describes the land as perishing, withering under the judgment of God. Jeremiah describes how Israel defiled the land with their sin. Joel describes the land like this. He says, The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Right Again, all worldly hopes, all earthly inheritances fade, perish, come to an end at some point. But not this hope, not this inheritance, Peter says. So Peter says we have a, a living hope, an, an indestructible inheritance. Finally, he says we have a certain salvation. It's good to know that this inheritance is indestructible. In fact, Peter even adds, it's kept in heaven for us. And by kept, Peter doesn't merely mean stored, but guarded. And this is one of those places where Bible scholars talk about the divine passive. Uh, our inheritance is kept in heaven. Well, who's keeping it? The implied answer is God. That God is guarding our inheritance in heaven. And that's good. But it's actually not good enough. My inheritance may be guarded in Fort Knox, but if I die before I inherit it, all that security was for nothing. But Peter says, not only is God guarding our inheritance, but we too, according to verse 5, by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God is protecting us ensuring that one day our inheritance will be our possession. And he does that through faith. God guards us through faith, which implies that our faith is, is first, at least, God's work. God guards us, keeps us, protects us by giving us faith, by sustaining our faith, by preserving our faith so that we will receive our inheritance on the last day. God keeps our inheritance, and God guards us for a salvation ready to be revealed. At any moment, Peter says, God could reveal the fullness of our salvation. When? Peter says, in verse 5, in the last time. On the final day, right? At the last hour. Now, according to the New Testament, actually, these are the last times. They began with the resurrection of Jesus. But even the last times will have a last time. Even the final days will have a final day. The last hours will have a final hour. And at that point, Christ will return, and our Savior will be revealed, and so our salvation will be revealed as well. This really begins to show just what our hope is. What is our inheritance? What is our salvation? Both inheritance and salvation in, in Scripture can be pretty comprehensive terms. Life in the land, without fear, without want. A land flowing with milk and honey where all enemies have been subdued. But where does this life of all fullness and no fear come from? 
It comes from God himself. This is our inheritance, God himself. And the Old Testament already suggested this, actually. Our inheritance is not a mere plot of land, whether in heaven or on earth. And that was never the case, right? To the priests, God said, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. But it wasn't limited to the priests. David, later on in Psalm 16, verse 5, says, The Lord is my chosen portion. Jeremiah calls God the portion, the inheritance of Israel. Our inheritance is God himself. Our salvation is the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is where Peter is going, right? I mean, just uh, turn over a chapter to chapter 2, verse 10. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Our hope, our inheritance, our salvation is the presence of our Savior. Seeing him face to face, dwelling forever with God as his people. And having him as our God, together with all the blessings that flow from that. All fullness and no fear in the presence of our Father. That's our inheritance. That's our hope. All hopes in this life are unreliable, insecure, more wishful thinking at times than genuine hope. All perish and fade, all come to an end. In fact, Jesus warns in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the question is, where is your hope? Is it in the present? Do you hope and long for the things of this age? Thinking, if only I had this or that, then everything would be good. Then I would be happy. Then my life would be complete. None of the pleasures of this age are certain, and all will certainly perish and fade. But we have a living hope in a living Savior who is ready to be revealed on the last day. So first question was, where does real hope come from? It comes from God who raises the dead and has given us new life. What does real hope look like? It is an indestructible inheritance, a certain salvation, a living Savior. It is a life of fullness and no fear. It is a life that cannot be lost with a Savior who will not let us go. It is what we long for and hope for, what is coming to us in fullness on the last day. Question three, what does real hope bring? You know, ask someone if they're excited about their upcoming birthday, and their response will probably be inversely proportional to their age. The younger they are, the greater their excitement. And whatever it is, a birthday, a new job, a summer break, a long overdue vacation, to the degree that we hope for these things, to the degree that we long for them and wait for them, to that degree we will have joy in the present in the anticipation of the future. In other words, hope brings joy. And so Peter says, verse 6, in this you rejoice. He means in this living hope, this indestructible inheritance, this certain salvation, in this you rejoice. In these things which are yours by promise, are yours already in principle in Christ, but are not yet yours 
by possession. In this you rejoice. And of course, real hope not only brings joy, it brings joy even in the midst of trials. Why is that? Well, Peter will tell us because hope tells us three things about our trials, actually. The hope, the Christian hope, tells us our trials have a purpose, that our trials will be rewarded, and that our trials will come to an end. Christian hope tells us our trials have a purpose. I hesitated a bit to say this because I, I heard someone say recently, the one thing suffering people don't want to hear is that their suffering has a higher purpose. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. Although I'm sure, right, in any particular moment, we need wisdom to know how to address someone who is suffering, who is undergoing trials. We don't say everything all at once, and so there is wisdom in holding off certain things. But, that said, our suffering does serve a higher purpose. Our trials are not meaningless accidents, but meaningful parts of the plan of our Father. And let me say first, you know, whatever you might be going through, God cares about your trials. In fact, Scripture says He keeps track of them. Psalm 56, verse 8, David says to God, You have kept my tossings. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David describes God journaling about David's troubles, writing them down so he doesn't forget, as it were. Your suffering does not go unnoticed by your father. It is precious to him because you are precious to him. In fact, Peter says, if you are undergoing trials in the present, he says in verse 6, it is necessary. Verse 6 says, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This word necessary is used in places like Luke 9.22, where Jesus says, the Son of Man must, that is necessarily, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The necessity is a divine necessity. That is, it's part of the plan of the Father. Again, what this means is your trials are purposeful, meaningful, If you're undergoing a particularly difficult trial at the moment, that may be hard to hear. I understand. But I would say consider the options. Either it is random and meaningless, or there is a good God who purposed it for his good purposes. You may not know what God is doing, but a good and gracious God is doing something in your life. And that is a reason to rejoice even in the midst of our trials. You don't rejoice in the suffering, but you rejoice in the God who is at work. Peter tells us, in fact, at least part of what our suffering does in verse 7. He says it tests, it proves the genuineness of our faith. Notice the metaphor that Peter gives. Our faith is like gold that is tested by fire. What happens to gold as it is put into the fire all the impurities are burned away. 
I think it's even fair to say that gold is beautified by fire. Beautified because purified. Or put differently, right, its natural beauty is brought out. What is God doing through the trials in your life? He is bringing out the beauty of your faith. Trials prove that our faith is not a farce, not a faith of convenience, not our parents' faith, or a byproduct of our culture or environment. Trials prove our faith is genuine and beautiful. Now, it takes a certain mindset to appreciate this. I understand If my eyes are set on this life and joy in this life and the pleasures of this life, this won't have teeth. If I want happiness here and now, nothing is worth this pain. But if I have the hope that Peter is talking about, if I know that this world is not all there is, if I know that my inheritance is in heaven and my Savior is coming, then I can be willing to endure now so that I can see him then. The Christian hope tells us that our trials have a purpose, and the Christian hope tells us that our trials will be rewarded. People can endure all kinds of things for the right reward. Scripture repeatedly tells us that our trials somehow, in some way, are preparing a reward. Now, I'm sure there are wrong ways of thinking about this, like seeking out suffering to get more of a reward. That is never what Scripture encourages. But Paul says something similar to Peter in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Peter is actually even more specific when he says, It is our our genuine faith, having been proven by trials, that results in praise and glory and honor when Christ returns. Now, these three things, praise and glory and honor, do normally and most often refer to God. But sometimes they do refer to God's people, normally when Scripture is talking about the last day. So Paul says, glory and honor and peace will be for those who serve God in Romans 2.10. A few verses later, he says, our praise will not be from man, but from God. In Romans 8, Paul says, We suffer with Christ that we might be glorified with Him. Part of the great Christian hope is actually having God praise us. We long to hear our Master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And so our tested faith, a faith that God gives and sustains, by the way, results in praise and glory and honor. Now, that's all to God's glory, right? Sometimes uh, the New Testament talks about these things in terms of crowns. Uh, Peter says in chapter 5, a little bit later in 1 Peter, that faithful elders will receive the unfading crown of glory. But then Revelation 4 says of the elders in heaven, that they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so we're not talking about competing praises or competing glory here, but the glory of our faith, which echoes back to the glory of God. We should note the magnitude of this glory. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And as I mentioned before, our, our tendency 
is to say, nothing's worth this. Nothing is worth the trial that I'm going through. And while I would never argue with someone in the midst of trial and suffering, the truth is, we cannot comprehend how glorious it will be. What will it be like to be without sin and without shame, without sadness and without pain? What will it be like to have all fullness and no fear? What will it be like to see God face to face? What will it be like to know only his love? We cannot imagine. Here's my guarantee. Whatever it will be like, it will make all your trials worth it. Now that may sound presumptuous for me to say, but I say that on the authority of Scripture, which says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. That comes from the Apostle Paul, by the way, a man who suffered much in this life. You know, great musicians and great athletes put themselves through rigorous routines and diets and schedules. And sometimes they go through things that normal people like me think, there's no way I would go through that. But when it's all said and done and they they win the race and they get the prize and the recognition for all their hard work and their persevering, they tend to say, it was all worth it. I'd do it again. How much more when the prize for our perseverance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and the very presence of God with us? It'll be worth it. The Christian hope tells us that our trials have a purpose, that our trials will be rewarded, and that our trials will come to an end. Look at verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter emphasizes that we have not seen Jesus. That is, during his earthly life. And we do not now see Jesus. That is, the resurrected Jesus now in heaven. Nevertheless, we love him, we believe in him, and we rejoice in him. Why? Because the outcome of our faith in him is the salvation of our souls. Not meaning, by the way... uh, us as disembodied spirits. The word souls might be misleading, but really, you look back beginning in the Old Testament, that word is often used simply to refer to the whole person. The outcome of our faith is our salvation as whole people. We have already begun to experience this through the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Spirit, but that's only the beginning. We will receive the fullness of our salvation on the last day at the return of Jesus. One day our trials will come to an end. Jesus will return. Our salvation will come in fullness. That is, we will be saved out of all of our troubles. Our hope, our living hope, our indestructible, certain hope will come. So what is real? Where does real hope come from? It comes from God who raises the dead. What does it look like? It's a living Savior, an indestructible inheritance, a certain salvation, a life that cannot be lost with a Savior who will not let us go. What does real hope bring? It brings joy in the midst of trials, which purify our faith, will be rewarded, and will come to an end when the promise of our hope becomes the possession 
of our hope. Last question, how incredible is this hope? And I haven't left myself any time to talk about this. Uh, And I could easily spend an entire sermon on verses 10 through 12, but let me just say this. The Spirit of Christ was at work in the Old Testament prophets, giving them a, a picture, a foreshadow, and hints of what was to come. And they longed to see it, but it was not for them. They wanted to know when the Christ would come, when he would suffer, when he would rise victorious, but they didn't know. They waited. But what they longed for and could only guess at has come. Jesus has come. He suffered for sin. He rose in glory. He has defeated guilt and death. And this is the message of the gospel that I proclaim to you today. Into this glorious message, Peter says, angels themselves long to look. How incredible is all this? For thousands of years, the prophets prophesied, and even now, angels stoop down to get a glimpse of the marvelous things that God has done in Christ and is doing in and for his church. May God give us the same curiosity and wonder as the angels. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the hope of Christ, that one day we will see him face to face, that he will return, that he will make all things new, and that we will dwell with him forever. Father, increase our hope in that day. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our trust in you and in your promises and in your word that we would hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.